I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. This morning we are going to hear a speaker share for 45 minutes on their experience, strength, and hope. What they were like and what happened and what what they were like, what happened, and what they are like today as a result of the program of action found in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA Solution Seekers would like to welcome Wendy C. from AA Solution Seekers Home Group. And I'm going, well, you can unmute yourself, my dear. I love you. And I'm going to shut up. I love you too, Mike. Good morning, everybody. My name is Wendy, and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. Um, thank you, everyone who's doing service. Thank you, Michael, for sharing. Um, so I will go the whole way back to the beginning because it played a huge part in how I thought growing up. Um, I'm 54. And when I was younger, uh, my both of my parents were alcoholic. I, I grew up my whole life in an alcoholic environment. Uh, my mom and dad <clears throat> got divorced when I was five. My dad was a very abusive, jealous, drunk, uh, never to us kids, but he was very abusive to my mother. And... Um, At one point, my mom had, I guess, what you would call a nervous breakdown, and she just left. And the three, myself, my brother, and my sister, were left in the house by ourselves. And my aunt and uncle ended up finding us, and the three of us got split up. I ended up in a foster home, and my brother and my sister ended up with two different family members. Um... I was there for three years, and then <clears throat> I moved back with my mother and her second husband, which happened to be my dad's brother. Um, then I went through a period of uh, sexual abuse, and my dad came and got me and my brother when I was 12. And my sister, throughout all this time, lived with uh, one of my mom's sisters. Uh, she raised her, basically. So I stayed with my dad until I was 16, so my high school years. And throughout that time, um, I made very good grades. Uh, I think I, I just I wanted to get my dad's approval so badly. And I was, I, I was the old, I'm the oldest child. So my caretaking and protectiveness over my brother and, you know, with this whole time, my dad was still drinking very, very heavily. He did get sober when I was 13. He went to a 28 day program and he was sober for quite a number of years after that. Um, so when I was 16, my dad and my stepmom uh, said they were going to get a divorce. My dad had cheated on her. And Jody was the one person in my life 
because I had gone through you know so much being bounced around and all over the place. Uh, basically, I felt like everybody that was supposed to love me and protect me hadn't done that, and I had you know I felt abandoned. I felt like I didn't matter. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I was bullied very badly all through school, you know, elementary, middle, and high school uh, because of various things. Um, my weight, I wore glasses, you know, whatever it was. So, you know, I buried myself in sports and books. And when I was 16, I kind of, I, I, um, I fell apart because... Jody was my stability. She was like, I could talk to her about anything and not feel judged. And, you know, she was always there where nobody else was. And, I mean, we're still friends, very, very good friends to this day. And, you know, so something in my mind kind of snapped and I ran away to find my mom. Now my mom is still actively drinking and felt guilty about the sexual abuse I had gone through as a child. So she had no discipline. She pretty much let me run wild, which was not a very good decision at all. You know, but parents don't have a how-to book. They do the best they can with what they have. But at the time I used that to my advantage. I, 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 before the age of 16, I had had one sip of champagne, and that's all I knew about alcohol. I always swore that I would never be like my dad. And when I was 16, I went to this house party, and I got drunk for the first time. And from day one, I was a blackout drunk, because all of a sudden, I felt like I was... You know, I was one of the guys and, you know, everybody wanted to listen to what I had to say. And I felt like I fit in and, you know, it just numbed everything I was going through. I was never a functional alcoholic. And I ended up in my first mental health ward when I was 18 because I tried to cut my wrist. And I was drunk at the time and uh, living with my sister. And um, they called the paramedics on me, so I was involuntarily admitted. And they wanted to put me on an alcohol drug called Anabuse, which makes you severely sick if you drink on it. And they wanted to put me on an antidepressant because they diagnosed me with severe depressive disorder. And I, I absolutely rebelled against all of that. I was like, I don't have a problem. You know, I was just basket case. It, 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 from 16, from probably before that, the whole way through my 20s, the 20s, my 20s are a blur. Like, I don't remember mostly any of it. I, I suffered a lot of sexual trauma during that time. I put myself in some very unsavory situations. I, I should have been dead multiple times. I truly should have been. I, I'm so grateful today that that you know I didn't take myself out of here or hurt anybody else in the process of my destructive path. Um, 
it was just it came to be a matter of I didn't understand why I was born. Like all of this pain and suffering, and I blamed everything. I used everything as a. I mean, I was just angry. I was just angry at everybody, and you know, I, I just I going back a little bit. I I started reading very 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 young, and you know that was a way for me to escape. Like I could escape in books and be in that story that wasn't my life. So I always wanted to either be somebody else or be somewhere else. You know, I was never okay in my own skin. I never wanted to be me. And as a result, I started writing very early. I actually wrote the first thing I ever wrote was when I was eight years old. And it was this kid's book. And then I started writing poetry and it was like an outlet for me for the pain. And um, so back to 18 and 20s, my entire 20s were spent in and out of jail. I, I had never, I had always been a goody goody. I followed all the rules and now I was in and out of jail all the time. And uh, got my high school diploma while I was in jail. And um, so at 33, I finally decided I might have a problem. And I went to a two-year residential program. Now, I had been to a couple 28-day programs before that. I've been in seven treatment centers altogether. And um, this two-year program uh, is, is a behavioral modification program. They don't base it on the 12 steps. It's more like living the 12 steps. They didn't have like AA meetings and things like that. Um, you learned a vocational trade and um, you learned how to express yourself in a more constructive manner. And I did go back to drinking within three months after leaving there. But that program changed my life like it's changed the way i looked at things uh when i was in that program for two months uh i got called to one of the staff members office to tell me that my father had passed away uh, he apparently had relapsed and started hanging out with some of his old buddies and they partied all weekend. And when he went back to work Monday morning, uh, his heart exploded, basically. And he died before he hit the floor. He was 53 years old. And so they drove me. I was in North Carolina at the time. That's where the program was. I'm from Pennsylvania. I born and raised here. Um, what they called a team leader. She drove me the whole way to Pennsylvania for the funeral. And uh, he happened to die on my son's birthday, which I, uh, I need to backtrack a little bit again with that. Um, I got pregnant with my son when I was 17, pregnant with my daughter when I was 18, turning 19. And uh, I... First, I didn't want to raise my children in the environment that I had been raised in. I didn't have a partner at the time. 
So it was me and I, you would think that, you know, for your kids, you can stop drinking. And I, I still didn't realize I had a problem. What I knew is that I couldn't raise them. I wasn't capable. You know, mentally, I wasn't capable. Physically, all, all I wanted to do was drink and numb everything. And uh, other people raised my children. And my dad, uh, because my both of my children are mixed, he originally wanted me to have an abortion. And I said, I refuse. You know, it's not that child's fault that I laid down and got pregnant and I refused to have an abortion, especially. And that was his only reasoning because my children were mixed. And so ironically, he ended up raising my son. And when he died, it was on his birthday, which, you know, was, was pretty big. Um, you know, my son was in a really confused state. He was dabbling in drugs at that point. And, you know, I felt all that guilt. Like, I carried that with me every single day, even though I knew it was the best decision if I couldn't stop drinking um, to give them a better home. But you still carry that with you. And so after I left the two-year program, I disconnected. I, I am good or I was good for getting out of treatment. And, you know, while I'm in treatment the whole time, I, I believed that I, I was going to not ever drink again every time I went to treatment. And I got out and didn't do any of the work. Like, I just wanted this magic wand to fix me and relieve me of the craving for drugs and alcohol because I never never understood that drinking wasn't a problem. Uh, drinking was my only coping mechanism. And if you take that away, I didn't replace it with anything because I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't go to meetings. I didn't stay connected. I didn't, I didn't get a network. And I didn't work the steps. I never got past step one. So... And right after I get out, I, I go right back to people, places, and things that, and, and not understand because, you know, when I'm drinking, I, I don't hang around with people that don't drink like I do because then I either have to act like I don't drink that much or, uh, yeah, it's basically a pretend, you know, a mask. And so I only drank, I only hung around with people that drank and used drugs like I did, which were drop down blackout drugs. And um, where am I at now? Thirty five. Um, so within three months, I was drinking again, and then I was I was drinking and using drugs pretty heavily for another. Well, basically, until I got sober this time. In between there, um, I ended up with my first ever DUI. And, you know, things just, I, I never accumulated anything after I started drinking because I was never functional. I didn't want any responsibility. 
I felt entitled. I felt like the world owed me something because my life had been so horrific. And, you know, a lot of people go through bad times. A lot of people go through trauma. And, you know, and I look back on all of that and I was so, so angry and resentful. And, you know, I just, and like I said, I just couldn't understand why I was born. I couldn't, I didn't see that I had a purpose in this life. You know, and if I did, you know, I, I pushed God away throughout this entire time. My foster family brought me up in the church. My mom and dad did not. So the little bit of, of religion that I had um, came from there. And I had a grandfather through marriage that was like a deacon in the church and you know he he was horrible to his his wife and his daughters you know there was a lot of a lot of sexual abuse there and he was physically abusive to my grandmother and would go to church and be this you know oh glory hallelujah wonderful on the on the on the face of everything you know life was perfect and he made me despise religion and as i got older you know i really i didn't understand religion but i was always spiritual i always believed in a higher power i just i didn't like religion because it seemed like everybody wanted to be right about their religion i felt like we're all we all have you know the higher power that looks out is like everybody calls him a different name perhaps, but, you know, we're all on the same side, so why is everybody fighting? Uh, but I couldn't place God and my alcohol together. They couldn't, they couldn't be together, because I idolized alcohol, and you know, I couldn't have a higher power in my life, and to have two higher powers, basically, that, that went against each other. So that's the way I was my entire life. And in September of 2022, I was basically looking at being homeless. And I've been homeless before, but this was a situation where I just felt so completely broken and desperate. And I didn't want to die. I wanted to die, but at the same time, I didn't want, I, I didn't have the courage to do that. Because uh, at the base, I, I, I really still always had this hope that things could be different. But at the same time, at this point in my life, I'm 53. And I don't think there's any hope for me. I, I feel like I'm too broken and that God can't forgive me for all the things that I've done in my life. And I just didn't see it. It was like I was in a black hole and I didn't see any light anywhere. And I was staying in a hotel at the time. And I remember sitting on the side of the bed and I, I've said this many times. 
And all I said was, God, I need a miracle. It was the first like genuine prayer. You know, I always did the barter system. Well, if you get me out of this, then I won't do this anymore. And um, that type of thing. And this was just genuine. And I didn't know what else to pray. That's, that's all I could get out. And uh, I had called my mom and asked her for $20 again. I, I had made her like my banker and asked her for $20 for gas. And where I was at the time, I was about 30 minutes from her. And, you know, I had to ask her for that because the night before I had spent all my money getting high and getting drunk again. And, you know, at some point she started showing tougher love, but she always still bailed me out to a degree and she didn't know how to not enable me and I used and manipulated anybody that that I could and she was the biggest the biggest one that I manipulated and she knew it and she she uh I was her daughter and you know we were very close <clears throat> And uh, she said, I suppose so. And um, I dropped my husband off at work and I was on the way to her house. And at some point during the drive, I said, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I just can't. I don't have any more energy to put in. I, I don't want. There's got to be something in the rest of my life that is better than how I'm living now and I'm just I'm, I'm miserable with alcohol I'm miserable without alcohol and I couldn't figure out I mean I couldn't fill the void if I ever could fill it I wasn't able to fill it anymore there was no joy there was there was no fun you know I was drinking because my body needed it and that was it you know it was a job it had become a job full-time everyday job and I got to my mom's and I said, I need to talk to you. And the first thing that she said was, no, you can't live here. <laughs> and I said, no, that's not. I said, well, I probably need to stay tonight. But uh, I, I, I started, I had told her what I was thinking. And I didn't even know what I wanted to do at that time because I still had it in my head that I would never go back to a treatment facility. However, I ended up on Google and I feel like my higher power directed, you know, what I was going to do. And I ended up on a treatment facility site and I called them and it was like a call center type of operator. And they got me set up with a treatment center in my area. And he called me back and he said, well, this is where you're going to go. And then he called me back again 20 minutes later and said, I'm sorry, there was some misunderstanding. There's not a bed there, which was a blessing because this place had like 400 and some residents and, you know, uh, a lot of bad reviews, let's say. And it, it, I don't think it would have been well suited for me. I think I would have run through that like the other 28-day programs. 
So he said, well, I, I have another option for you that I think may be a better fit. And it was called Bradford Recovery Center, and it's about two miles from the New York state line, which from where I'm at is about four and a half hours. They came and got me. They were there the next day. So I, I managed not to take a drink until they got there. And then I, I did the 28 days. And this program is absolutely amazing. Like I, I, I can't even describe. And it, and it may not have been that they were any more amazing than any other treatment center I've been in. I was just ready. And uh, I was just, I, I finally surrendered. And I, throughout my life, there was some part of me because I'm intelligent that had to do research that, you know, why, why am I so smart in every other area and I cannot master alcohol? I, there has to be a way. And, and I could never figure out a way because, you know, the mental twist, the obsession, the, you know, the powerlessness over alcohol that I wasn't trying to do any action to counteract. And I finally gave up that fight. I, I hated to admit powerlessness and I hated to leave, be vulnerable because in my family growing up, like you, you, you didn't show vulnerability. You didn't discuss your feelings. Um, you didn't show emotion. And what goes on behind closed doors stays there. You don't talk about anything that might make us look bad when you leave the door, when you leave the house. You know, and, and, and when you carry those those values or ideas for 50 years, they become pretty ingrained. And, but I was willing. And that was something that I had never really been. I fought, fought every step of the way all throughout my drinking career. But there were there were amazing counselors. There was only like forty five people there, so it was a lot of one on one. There was you know a lot of you know there was a lot of things going on there that were very very constructive and, and helpful. And and I put everything into it because twenty eight days is just not a long time. And I generally would do the twenty eight days in the and leave and go right back to you know, whatever I was doing before. This time I chose to stay. They had an additional program after the 20 days, a partial hospitalization program, you know, where the women lived in a different house, but, you know, we still went back to the center to, you know, do our groups and whatnot. So I stayed in that, in the PHP program for an additional month, month and a half. And then I made the decision because I still didn't feel like I was ready to go to a halfway house. And it was first halfway house I had ever been in. I stayed there three months. And then I, uh, I was, I had a lot of fear at that point because I didn't have, I was homeless. I would have been homeless basically. 
uh, I need two knee replacements. So the only jobs I've ever done are serving and warehouse work, which require you to be on your feet all day. I couldn't do that anymore. So I had no prospect for a job at that point. And my mother found out that she got hours to have a caregiver and she decided to ask them if I would be able to be her caregiver and they told her yes. So with that, I had a job and a place to live coming out of the halfway house. And this was the end of January, first part of February. So I came home. And, you know, I got this look from her like, yeah, we've been down this road before. And, and every time I would leave the house, it was that, you know, if I wasn't home on the dot, you know, calling me, where are you at? Why is it taking me so long to get home? And I never, I didn't get upset. I, I did occasionally. Um, but not not really, because I understood that you know, I put her through 37 years of hell, and she told me at one point she was just waiting for a call in the middle of the night to come identify my body. And, you know, I never, in my mind, I was like, well, you know, I'm fine. Why, you know, why should anybody worry about me? And I wouldn't call anybody and check in. I mean, I would just go for months at a time and not, and not call anybody, and nobody knew whether I was dead alive or, you know, or what was going on. Um, so I found, I didn't know anything about Zoom at all. Uh, you know, it's been a lifesaver for me because of my knees, because I couldn't get around. I didn't have a car, um, for transportation to drive myself anywhere. So Zoom was a lifesaver for me, but I, I we did Zoom meetings in the halfway house, but every the staff members always logged in and all that stuff. So I had to navigate that. And I started scrolling through all these meetings when I went to the website, the AA online directory. And I scrolled through all these meetings and I stopped on this. And I, I, I don't know why it had solution in the title. That may have been part of the reason, but I feel like my higher power directed me to this meeting and I joined this became my home group uh, three days of listening to people share I heard Lisa share and I asked her to be my sponsor and she's still my sponsor so I immediately got out the difference um the difference was I immediately got out and started doing the work. And to this day, I have no idea what was different. You know, I think part of it was I was 53. My dad died when he was 53. I, I have a lot of life in me, hopefully. And, you know, I want to do something good with it. I want to have serenity and peace in my life and I was never going to find that at the bottom of a bottle and I finally gave into that fact now we started going through the steps I've never read the big book other than a couple stories in the back although I have been to AA meetings 
they were mostly court ordered. And if I ever got a sponsor, it was a name only. I didn't call her. I didn't call any a thousand pound phone. Well, why does somebody want to listen to my, you know, whatever's going on with me? And none of it made any sense to me. I hated the cliches. Um, I hated it when people would say, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And now I felt that exact same way because I never thought I'd get sober. <clears throat> but it took about nine months of, you know, working through the steps. We started from the very beginning of the book and, you know, going to the big book studies and all of that kind of thing to get to step three. And like I said earlier, I I, I, didn't, I had never gotten past step one because I couldn't get past the surrendering part. And with the higher power thing, it wasn't that I didn't believe in a higher power. I didn't believe that he would forgive me or could or why, why would I would God love me because I was so broken still. And I, I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of worry about that. And, and I had a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. And my sponsor finally told me, you're ready for step four. You're ready to do your fourth step. And I was like, are you sure? Really? I, I don't feel like I'm ready. And the fourth step for me was terrifying. The prospect of it was terrifying because I was like, I don't want to dig back in all this stuff from my past and bring all this stuff up again. But after I did it, she gave for initially, she gave me a two week deadline and she said, I'm, I'm doing that because it gives you a time frame instead of like drawing it out for a year. And I mean, it, it took a little bit longer than that. After I was done with it, it felt like a house was lifted off of me. I just, I couldn't even, I can't, I can't express <laughs> how much lighter I felt at letting that go. Now, I still struggled with giving it up to a higher power and letting it stay there without taking my will back and all of those kind of things. And, you know, I would go back and forth. And then I started praying and meditating every day. And, it, and then I could tell, like, there were days I would forget to pray. And I could tell. Like, that's when resentment would pop up. And anxiety and stress and worry and fear and all of those kind of things. And I started realizing all of these things quicker and quicker and with my character defects that would pop up. And then my sponsor asked me to do a nightly inventory, to write it out every night. And she said, I want to do that for three months. And I'm like, in my head, I didn't say it, but in my head, I'm like, are you insane? Why would I need to do that for three months but I did it and after doing it for about two weeks I'd say I realized how beneficial this was for my recovery because I was able to see written out my resentments and my patterns and my behaviors my repeated behaviors and realized this is me this is not everybody because the same stuff kept popping 
And I'm like, and it, it helped me to change those and it helped me to recognize immediately when I was doing those things and when I was blaming other people, when I was being manipulated, when my ego was getting up. And then we come to this past month where, you know, when I was drinking, I every little thing, I mean, it rained. It, it didn't rain. It was sunny. It was snowing. You know, the Eagles won. They lost. It didn't matter. I, I, I always found a reason to drink. Resentment is a killer for, I think, any alcoholic. And I resented. I had so much resentment. So, you know, that was a perfect excuse. So this past December, uh, my birthday was on the 7th. My mom wanted a cardiac arrest unexpectedly on the 10th. And she was without oxygen for almost 40 minutes. So she logically in my brain, I knew she was brain dead. That part that doesn't want to let go of a loved one. You know, automatic, it kicked in. And, you know, I had to do CPR or compressions until the EMTs got there. So I didn't have time to think about anything. And then the EMTs got there. And I could have easily gone the other way and allowed that to take me under. And the first thing I did was pick up the phone. And I, I can't express for anybody new the importance of picking up a phone and calling somebody in AA because my thinking will take me down the wrong path every single time and I need people to check my thinking and I needed emotional support and I, I wouldn't have been capable of staying sober through that had it not been for the people in this in in this group alone, you know, uh, you know, people in my sober support network from other meetings. I mean, just everybody was there unconditionally, was there for me emotionally. You know, I I could feel people with me. Like you, everybody is like miles and miles away but i can feel the love with me and you know a couple of days later um uh, well when we went to the hospital found out she had rsv and pneumonia and the doctor called me the following morning and said i'm going to be very frank with you you know she was without oxygen for a long time and would she want you to leave her in a vegetative state. And I said, no, she wouldn't. So I had to make the decision to allow them to unplug the machines. And my mom, it's been me and my mom for a lot, a lot, a lot of years. And that was like ripping my heart out. And, um, but that decision had to be made. And Two days later, I had to go to the ER and found out that I had RSV, but I didn't have pneumonia. RSV, I had to look it up 
it, it's very, very contagious. And they put me on steroids, and I've been on steroids many, many times. And they work very quickly, generally. Well, about three days, three, four days later, I felt like I was getting worse. I felt like it was in my back. I ended up going back to the hospital on the 16th. And I was admitted almost immediately. My blood pressure was 207 over 116. Um, they put a machine and a mask on me. They, they came in almost immediately. The doctor said, I'm worried about respiratory failure. I was in very bad shape, apparently. I ended up having RSV and viral pneumonia, which are both untreatable. The kind they basically have to run, run its course through your system. And I, I, from what I understand, I, I was very close to not making it through that. And four days, they couldn't take me. I, I couldn't, they wouldn't allow me to eat or drink anything because they couldn't take the mask off long enough without my oxygen plummeting. So after four days, the ICU doctors came in and said, we're moving you to ICU because they can't take care of you here. We need to monitor you more closely. And if we can't get you to turn around, we're going to have to intubate. So they were going to put a breathing tube down. And at this point, I'm like, God, you know, what is going on? So the, the nurse is left to go get something ready to take me to ICUs. And I had to have a, a conversation with God. And I talked to him just like I'm sitting here talking to you right now. And I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on, but I know that I haven't fulfilled whatever purpose it is that you have for me. And I, I don't, I can't believe that you brought me this far just to take me up out of here. And I said, but I don't know what your plan is. So I just have to give this to you and put it in your hands. Within... An hour of taking me to ICU, the nurses brought in a different machine. They said, we're going to try something new, which, you know, wasn't a full mask. It was just a tube. Uh, it was still a breathing machine, but it, it wasn't as in-depth as the other one. And within 12 hours, I was off all the machines, and all I had was, like, the little cannula of oxygen that they give you. And you know, and so instead of turning away from my higher power, all of this propelled me towards it. And, you know, my mom lived in a senior housing building. So what the result was is that I wasn't old enough to stay there by myself. And then I talked to the lady, the, the director in the office, who was very cold about everything and explained to me that I had 14 days to get out. This was the day before I went, was admitted to the hospital, which would have made it Christmas Eve. And everybody, like people that I have here that are not in recovery and the people that are here, my sober network, everybody banded together you know, a lady that I have art therapy, which is my outlet outside of, of um, AA. She organized and got with the ministry. They got movers 
they got people to pack up my entire apartment. Um, well, they got the yeah, they got people to pack that, take it out of there, um, free of charge. You know, she paid for three months of storage so that I wouldn't lose my things, and and because of everything I was going through, I didn't have to choose. You know, pick and choose what I was going to keep and what I wasn't when I'm laying up in a hospital bed. Um, just on and on. You know, the people in this group banded together to help me out so that I had some living because I lost my job and, and housing all in one swoop. And it was just all of that just piled on top of each other. And I never had to drink because of this program. I didn't. And, you know, that's what I need to say. There's nothing ever that will be solved by going back to a drink. And, you know, there's, I can't, there's nothing, no drug, no alcohol in this world that would ever give me this feeling, the serenity, the peace, the promises. We were painstaking about this phase of our, development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. I never dreamed that my life would be what it is today. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Mike, thank you so much for sharing and everybody again for doing service. I love you all. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers online group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker, one after another, from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us.